Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. Hello, Tim Johnson. We finally get to connect. Yes. Yes, I'm excited. So where, where are you right now? I am in Huntsville, Alabama. So I'm about an hour from Nashville and about three hours from Atlanta. Is that where you grew up? No, I actually grew up in Detroit, Michigan, born and raised. Uh, I grew up in the west side of Detroit, a uh, small town called Brightmore. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, of course, go into your Bluebell days. And I loved talking to you before we recorded. And I want to make sure we have a lot of time for what happens after a dance career, because I think yes. that is just really important. And I think just the way you've done it is so beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So what was, what was it like? What got you into dance? And, so, you know, where? God, um, the earliest memory for dance for me was my mother cooking. I was four years old and she was cooking in the living room, in the kitchen. And I was in the living room and Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation was premiering on MTV. This was October of two, uh, 1989. Um, and I saw her dancing and I saw my mom dancing. And three months later, I enrolled in dance class at my mom's recreation center. And the rest is history. I fell in love with dance, watching my mom and Janet Jackson. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What kind of dance? Did you take a, a bunch of different styles? Or? So I took every, uh, well, I started off with ballet and jazz until high school. And then I was everything, ballet, jazz, tap, hip-hop, lyrical, contemporary. It was very much everything. And I went to a performing arts high school my first year. So I was, I was in it. <laughs> wow. You were committed. Were you saying, I'm going to be a professional dancer or this is this what I want to do now? God, I was just a kid who loved being around the music and the women until about 10. Um, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then a puberty happened and I was like, no, this is, this is it forever. Uh, that's, that was my claim. To, you know, the end of middle school, beginning of high school is when I seriously was like, this is all I want to do. So yeah so what what got you to get to your first audition or what did you know about the professional dance world like what was your exposure nothing, nothing at all just I mean and I hate to say it, just being a kid in the ghetto in Detroit the only dance experience I had uh before high school was I saw cats every year on PBS they would play cats and I was like oh my god this is amazing <laughs> They're cats. Um, <laughs> the original hairspray. My mom was an artist as well. So she, music was everything. My grandfather used to do lights for prints when he came to Detroit. So my cool. family was just artistry. And I was like, I love dance. Um, but they had an audition for the Detroit Pistons dance team and the WNBA dance team um, when I was 13. And I said, Mom, I want to go. And she was like, that's like 30 minutes away. And I was like, so she took off work um, and we drove up there and it was about 2000 kids that was out on the middle of the court auditioning. And we had four days of auditions. I was 13. This was summer of 99. Um, and I got the job. We, uh, long story short, my, we had to do a special talent at the end of the audition. And there were kids who were doing commercials. It had to be non-dance related. And kids were doing commercials and uh, acting and uh, just really cool stuff, double dutching, and I loved it. Um, I brought a griddle and I made my coach at the time an omelet. 
on the <laughs> court in front of everyone. And she came to Vegas when I was in Jubilee to see the show. And she was like, I still tell people that you made me breakfast as your special talent. I said, I knew it would get you. You know, I mean, oh my gosh. one of those, so that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my career at 13 and the rest was history. Yeah. Hearing what you do now and hearing that story, it just feels like that makes sense. That makes you, sense. Now that you've yeah. known a little bit about me, it's like, oh, he would do that. But it make, it's like, this is something that's unique. And it's like, I'm going to give you something. It feels like that, that whole heart to do. I argued with my mother and she was like, well, you can do this and you can do that. And I was like, I can cook her breakfast, ma. She was like, we got a, a little hot oven. We brought that. I brought a carton of eggs, some uh, pepper to season it with, two pieces of bacon. I made her an omelet with cheese and a, two pieces of bacon on the side. I had a plate with plastic forks and spoons on it. And I gave it to her, and it was for the judges. And I was like, oh, she's the coach. Sorry. Like, oh my, so, Okay, this was, is making me laugh and cry at the same time. <laughs> that is one of the best stories I've heard. I love it. And I love are all, are all the other Are all the other kids and everybody just watching you do this? Oh, my God. So, yeah, the final, so the final 24 were all in the practice facility at the Palace where the Pistons play. And we were all in the practice facility. And we all had to go one at a time. And I kind of... Walked up, and we had our parents with us, too, because it was the final cuts. And I had walked up and plugged it into the center of the court where there was a plug, sat in the floor in a moxo position, and I just made an omelet and bacon. And, yeah, it was crazy. And you got the job. I did. I did. I was on (laughs) all four years of high school. So I got the job summer of 99, and I finished when the WNBA won the championship in 2003. Wow. So you're – on the team. And you're like a kid in high school living this life. Oh, you so high still... school was, oh, yeah, I was still in high school full time. And you're doing like, the, yeah, you're going to like the professional <laughs> games. Real, it was so crazy. Freshman year and sophomore year were very difficult because I got kicked out of my freshman high school, uh, my performing arts high school, and had to go to the local high school, which was only a football field away from each other. But the, fre- the, the performing arts high school was kind of like fame. And if you've mm-hmm. never seen Lean On Me, my local high school was metal detectors, gang squad, police. Uh, uh, they chained the doors every day at 8 and took the chains off at 3.30 so we wouldn't leave. So it was a very different um, oh, wow. mindset. But high school for me was a blur because at 3.30, I could go to practice for the Pistons or the Shock. Or at 4.30, I had a game I had to get to. So I got good enough grades so my mom wouldn't uh, tell me to get off the team. Oh my gosh. Were you still taking dance class while you're doing that? Or was that enough to keep you like high school growing? Very full. I didn't realize I was on yearbook or journalism until after I had graduated, but I was on yearbook team. I was on yearbook committee journalism. I was a dancer on the ensemble until senior year. Um, I was, I did dance in school, full school. And then I was at two different dance studios. So my mom's dance studio in Detroit, uh, in a dance studio out in Troy, and then I danced with the Pistons. So those four years for me were, I would sleep maybe four or five hours every night, all four years of high school. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. So what was the uh, style? Because I'm thinking that's like the 90s and the, that was, the, that was what the dance was. Oh, it was, it was flashy. It was when Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and Christina were at their height. So it was very poppy. It was very new. It was pink. It was as well as Lyrico for me, my generation, I always joke now, like my generation was the children did Lyrico without even knowing what it meant. Like, you yes. want to say, emoting, like, 
my teachers <laughs> would just emote and it was like we're seven what do you want so <laughs> i lost my true love yeah like how do i know about my true love when all i have is a, a gerbil what do you mean so, <laughs> it was, it was very, like, oh, oh i'm dying from what come come back come back. oh my god i love seeing these children Mm. Well, yeah, and I just remember going to competition, and it's like, oh, these, yeah, it's like, bless your heart. <laughs> so where, did you, did you have anyone, because I feel like a lot of people, it's because we had someone in our life that said, oh, did you know about this, or here's an opportunity. Did you have um, anything that made you say, I'm going to go to Vegas? You know what's crazy? I had done cruise ships by that time. I had already been dancing at Disney World for a little bit. Um, it was, I didn't want to live around the world at that time anymore. I was tired of being in the world. I wanted to live in the States, but I was never a New York or an LA type of boy when I was too tall to be in LA. Um, and New York for me, I never really liked the city. It was too many, it was too much. Vegas felt like it was a lot of artists there. And so I bought a one-way ticket. My friend from the Navy was living there and he was like, hey, do you wanna just come here, see if you like it? I think you'll love it. And me, him, and his sister lived together for three weeks before I got the job at Jubilee. And the rest was history. I auditioned so you, in July. Did you audition for Fluff? I auditioned, yeah. Uh, July, uh, I, came, I flew in for the audition. And I was like, I'm going to be here for two weeks. And if it works, I'm here. And if it not, I'll see what else is in the world. And Fluff was there. Diane was there. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was the first time in my adult life because so much of my career was before 21 um and then after 21 cruise ship was very different but i got to vegas in 23 at 23 and so i hadn't wore g-string and i didn't know what it was like to be around so many half-naked people all the time it was, <laughs> it was it was like the locker room but on stage because you know in a dance dressing room you're always around each other but it was like that on stage and i was like this is weird this is new for me um but yeah, one of my close friends got me my first G-string at the audition. He was like, oh, I got one in my dressing room. I got one for you. It's clean. Because I didn't know we needed a G-string once we made it past the first cuts and stuff. Oh, my yeah. gosh. When I, because we're going uh, to interview Jonah, and he had a similar story. Because you don't know to show up with a dance belt or G-string. It's like, like I'm what, what am I wearing? Boxers? I have no idea what. <laughs> so I was in booty shorts, and I was like, oh, I need a G-string. And then just the whole process of them telling you your name and then turning around like I was like oh I was so taken back and I, I don't want to bring up the race but as a black kid from Detroit you could have never told me at 23 24 I'd be on a Vegas stage which was amazing but having to say my name and then turn around in a g-string like yeah oh, this was crazy but I loved it it was it was quite the most amazing high uh, when I got the call that I was in the show like a week later so it, it was crazy, yeah. And you're already doing that style of dance because the cruise ships are similar. Yeah. It's different, but similar, but just a different, different category. Like um, cruise ships are usually big variety shows. So one show was all Motown, one show was all Review, one show was all Broadway. But this was very, you know, go, going through the scenes of Jubilee was for me. It was very um, timeless. I had never experienced something like opening night. Um, it was beautiful. The first time I did the ceiling drop as a principal understudy, I was like, oh my God, this is what it is. Oh. Like, it was, it was crazy, you know. The, the first time the curtains went up, 
for finale and I saw all the girls in their headdresses. I was on, I was like, oh, oh focus, I got to dance. Like, right. it was, you know. I could see just stopping what you're doing just to look around at the spectacle. Like, oh wait, I'm on so stage. Many pictures of moments that my friends from Detroit wouldn't have believed unless I showed them pictures, just telling the story wasn't enough. Just to be like, oh, this is real. Like, this is real. I remember watching Showgirls in the 90s and my mom covered my eyes so much. But then being there and like, it's 120 people on this stage and half of them don't have clothes on. Wow. Right. I, like, I love that whole thing. There's locker room, but it's on stage. I'm like, yeah, that's just not. It, like, it felt like our dressing room, as, as we are in our dressing rooms as dancers, kind of comfortable, half naked, playful, joyful. It's dancing, singing. But it felt like that just on stage for everybody to see with, with our makeup actually done and, you know, our fishnets <laughs> all the way on and not just around our ankles, <laughs> you know, in between shows. So it was, it was crazy. What stands out to you of some of your favorite parts of Jubilee? You know, if it's backstage, on stage, outside Family, of the show. The people I met, the people that would come over my house every Thanksgiving because I cooked quite a bit. Um, and those same still people I'm in communication with 12, 13 years later, that was the backstage, and not just the dancers, it was text that I'm still close to. It was the, the Jubilee family. Uh, not all 120 people will be best friends, and they shouldn't be. That's crazy. But the ones you meet, you, you meet up for lunch in between shows. You're on, some of us would just sit on stage in between shows and connect, or practice lifts, or go and walk around outside. Um, the ones that you would want to spend time with outside of work were family. Uh, the ones that met my parents when they flew in, I'm still friends with 98% of them. So that mm. was because my parents really, I didn't want them to meet a lot of people that I would just know for six months and never see again for real. So when I was in Vegas and I bought a house, I'm like, okay, y'all can come visit. <laughs> That's so funny. In my mind, I'm thinking like how being on stage partly naked would be intimate, but actually like sharing your family with your friends is yeah, more intimate. Yeah, very much. Like for me, the body is the body where dancers, we're used to being half naked anyway, but being on stage half naked is just, for me, it was an added plus. Like, I can be in a G-string and y'all gonna pay me with insurance? Yeah. <laughs> that was crazy. But when my family came, I'm like, I'm gonna do a big barbecue and invite the people I want to meet my parents. And so I did. And it was crazy just to look at the picture of them. And I look and I'm, I'm thinking, everybody in that picture, I'm still close to still. So that for That's... me is what a lot of my traveling meant like not the stages or the songs that when I hear them I'm like oh that song reminds me of this choreography from 20 years ago but oh this song reminds me when I was on stage with such and such or we would laugh every night during finale so Jubilee more than anything brought the forever family with me like people that blood did not make family loyalty did so it was good. What did, you, had, did your parents was it your mom and dad or who all came was it your brothers and sisters um my mom and dad came my mom and pops came on two of my contracts on cruise ships I tried to get my brother out there for years but he didn't want to um <laughs> but uh, I I had an open invitation when I got my house I said come visit Vegas I'm here so my guy sister came my parents came four of my friends from Canada came in the three and a half four years I was there so I had friends from cruise ships uh, if they were in Vegas or in LA they would drive up so it was, it was home. It was, it felt like an artistry haven where musicians, dancers, singers could be in Vegas and still have little, feel like home and not feel like you're on an island by yourself or on this contract with these people. Vegas, people had homes with communities who 
We went to the grocery store. We went to the parks. On our days off, we hung out together. And that was different than most performing jobs in L.A. or New York. It felt more like family than those what did, Yeah. What did your parents think when they saw you in the show? If they saw the cruise um, ship, they kind of had a little preview, but to come to see you. are my biggest fans and my brother. They love watching me dance. But my father had no idea it was topless until intermission, until halfway through the show. He texts me backstage. He goes, uh, son, are they not wearing tops? <laughs> he was so enthralled with the spectacle. He did not realize most of the show. He didn't realize until Red Fans that the girls were topless. That's how amazed he was with the, he said, the costumes, the lights, the music. So for me, it was just giving my parents a chance to see what I do, as opposed to when I was in Detroit, they came to every game. They came to every recital, every competition but I was no longer 18. So yeah. they loved it. I put them up in a hotel in a suite and they just, uh, they give, them the, about give them the treatment. I put us in a hotel for a week. And I'm like, I did. <laughs> but it was okay. <laughs> so it expensive. Um, when we were talking earlier, you were talking about friends that you just connected with and that you stay in touch mm-hmm. with. And was it the pink and purple? Yeah, so pink and purple yeah. during Titanic. And I met some of, one of my best friends in Utah, uh, Reagan, um, we would talk every pink and purple. Um, she was my pink and purple partner. And that's how we caught up. How was the weather? How was your day? Because uh, we didn't talk during, in, in between shows because she would go with her Bluebell friends. or we just. But that was our moment to communicate during pink and purple. Um, it's so interesting because I can so relate to that. But I think when you watch a show, you have no idea that people are no like... Idea that we're having full conversations on show because we were <laughs> professionals. Right. Yeah, it's like I'm looking adoring you. Like, did you have lunch today? What'd you have? Oh, day. Like that full smile. As long as you kept the Disney smile, as I say, you were good. How's your day? Yes, you're <laughs> loving us right now. Oh my God, the weather's amazing. Like, <laughs> oh, that's so good. So, yeah. did you have? Um, I would like to talk about because we were talking about there was an ebony line, and then like that it's it was it's changed over the years. But like I, you brought up something about costumes or just things that. People say that you go, wait, I didn't really think about how that affected. You you were speaking about just, as for me, I was the only African-American in so many cruise ship casts and so many land shows that when I got to Vegas, I was truly surprised at how many African-Americans were in the show already and then how many they hired just on my experience as an African-American in the dance world. Um, In Detroit, it was maybe two or three of us in a cast of 24 when I got on cruise ships, I was one of 15, one of 17, you know, for six months yeah. together. The only other African-Americans were the Jamaican cooks on the cruise ship or the, the, the hairstylist in the salon. Like, not, not a stereotype, but just honest facts, because I worked on 11 cruise ships. That was my experience. And then when I got to, there were certain cruises where I was on wait notice because I didn't look like the, the white male dancers. And then in Vegas, they called me the plus size dancer for quite a while. Like I was the plus size dancer because I was bigger than some of the cast and I wasn't petite. Um, and when I heard those comments, it was it, it was followed by, well, most of the ebony line was thick. Um, and I did not realize up until the 80s or 90s, there was an ebony line that it, it, if it wasn't public knowledge, it was definitely something the costume was used like for the ebony line, uh, which was the black line, the tall girls or the, the boys who did Gershwin. So it was a, it was like, oh, wow, that was weird, you know, but it was the job at the time. Right. 
Did it feel different if you'd always been the one out of 15 to be in a cast where there were more black dancers? Oh, Did it? My God. It was, I felt more comfortable because it was, when I came into the show, I came in with two black boys and two black girls as well. So it was already four of us coming to the show. And, and then when I saw the older black bluebell girls, and then Jonah was already in the show, one of my good friends, I was like, wow, there's a lot of color in the show for 120 and to have probably almost 15 blacks. That was, for me, I was like, whoa. And so each one I tried to gravitate to because it was very foreign. And I was 23. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow. Hey, hey, what's your name? Like, even at the audition, every black person I saw at the audition was, it was, it was an excitement to see because in my experience, even at auditions, I was at, at Disney World, it was almost 3,000 people at that audition. I could count us with, with one hand and room to spare. Like, oh, it's only three of us in the sea. And that was very disheartening, but also I would get the opposite, the adverse. Like, well, you're a black guy, so you got a better chance of getting it. And it was like, uh, mm. you know, or you're in shape, so you got a better chance of getting it. You're a black guy who lifts. One casting director for one of my cruise ships literally said, well, you're black and in shape and you can lift. You're definitely hired. What do you want to make a week? Oh, wow. <laughs> I found out I was one of the, when I worked on a certain cruise company, I realized I was making more than some of the singers. And we all knew singers made more than dancers. I negotiated the hell out of my contract because I was a piece of meat, it felt like. So I was like, oh, well, you can pray prime dollar. Like, he was like, you're black and in shape and you can lift. Like, when do you want to start? Where He asked me what itinerary mm. I wanted. He said, really? do you want to do the Mediterranean? Do you want to go to Africa? Like, do you want 11-day cruise? He asked me that I want to go to cruise. He gave me a choice of what cruise ship and which itinerary I wanted. How long? Did you want to work six months or three months here? It was a very, and I was before Vegas. It, it really put me in a mindset of, wow. And that was all I could come with. And when I spoke about it with a female dancer, that contract, she was so mad about the wage gap. She didn't even hear the, the, the discrimination. The, 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 the. I was so inward for so many years. But Vegas was a very good turning point. I had seen so many people. And like I said, that was one of the only contracts where a lot of those people are still family. You know, I know their children. I speak to them. We communicate. Yeah. So, well, and also when you get put into a show together, because you're to get, you know, instead of the one person being put in, the people that are rehearsing all those hours, and if you're going in there with more African-Americans, it feels like that kind of helps you get a community before you even uh, go into this massive one. I felt better. Um, I, I, I knew one of the bluebells that was already in the show. She was so nice before during rehearsals that I knew her and her boyfriend, who was a tech, so early on that my experience was even better because if me and him were backstage before a show or before a number and I was on his side of the stage, we would just talk. And that was our shorthand. You know, he would sit on the stairs and I would be waiting for Titanic or, or um, Slaves in, a, in a Samson and Delilah when I was running on the cage. We would sit there and I would have my whip waiting and we would talk. So it was those moments that I remember more than any of the bad. Just that sentence, like I'm standing there with a whip. <laughs> Having in a my conversation in your Talking. G string. Yeah, you know, just bestead it, bedazzle G string as well. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the conversations my friends would be like, Tim, stop lying. I'm like, no, I was backstage with the tech and you know, just in my G string with a with a with a nice nine tail whip. Right. 
Yeah, this like if you haven't lived this life, some of the things I had a friend that I, I worked in Bermuda in a show, and I'm telling her, Oh, we swam with the dolphins here. Oh, here's what we did this. She goes, Do you hear you? Do you hear? And she goes, And then she said, you, You're my poorest friend because I don't have any money because I own a dance studio, but you've lived like one of my richest friends. But I'm like, Like things on the ship, and like you get to experience life in a way that I think dancers, that's the I way I, I've, I've swam with dolphins, I've deep sea dived, I've I've uh, ziplined. I mean, I it, pick it. And I was like, oh, I don't have to pay for this, especially on cruise ships. I did every excursion, every hike, every because the, the excursion director said, you want to do it? All you got to do is show up and take pictures with the guests. You can go for free. I went, yes, I'll wake up at 6 a.m. I'll be on the deck. Like, and so I did everything, every contract. I rarely spend time with my cast unless we sat at the beach because I enjoy suntanning. And so that was the only time I would sit at the beach with the cast and drink if we were like at a beach residence. But where's Tim at? Ah, Tim went on the excursion. Or I worked in the library. If we didn't have cruise ship duties, I would volunteer at the spa or the library just to, to be in a library with books and have quiet and get paid extra for four hours of quietness on a cruise ship. Yes. Because oh who's with us in the library on cruise ship? Wow. And that you chose that. I chose it. And I got paid extra when I worked on cruise ships, especially when I did Norwegian. I did um, the spa. I worked in the spa in the mornings from 8 to 12, answering phones and booking appointments. Because it was just, I, if I'm going to be on the ship and I, every 12 days I'm meeting 2,000 new people, I want to meet them. I want to hear their story. I think history is, history is truly a collection of stories you hear. I love airports for that reason. Don't judge me. I love airports. Oh, it's wonderful. How are you? Where are you going? Oh, that's awesome. Like, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Really well, then just thinking back of you being a young dancer in Detroit and like someone said, hey, you know what you're going to do? You're going to yeah. swim with all, like the, the opportunities that like I go, I could never afford to go do any of the things I've gotten oh, to do because wow. of dance. But just those experiences, like, you know, you can be partying. Like I know people that partied their whole career and never really left their hotel room or where they lived and mm -hmm. got to experience and it. I did but that's on the contracts. I mean, there were some contracts, like I did gigs for two weeks in cities where I did, I couldn't tell you parts of the world I went to where I only know what the hotel and the airport looks like. You know, I went from work to sleep and sleep to work and then, oh, my contract's over, let's get on the plane and go wherever I'm going next. That was the loneliness in the business, but it was also, for me, I still love that. I love cities depending on how nice the airport is to me. Like, I don't like going to O'Hare because I it, did, it never treated me well. Like. It's just not a good airport, but you, yeah. you know, as an artist, you, I bet you, you can tell me your favorite airport. Right. <laughs> Bermuda. <laughs> you, you know, your favorite airport. I know you, my favorite. Like, you remember being in there like, Hey, this airport is, I'm about to either go here or I'm about to go do this. And that was the, wow, I'm about to go do this. Oh my gosh. So, cause Vegas, I only lived there for a couple months and I was there when it was 120 degrees. So I would go to work. I would like, and I remember taking dance class and shaking so hard I could hardly walk because the classes were harder than anything I'd ever taken. And it was yeah. so hot. But yeah. if you're living there, how you did what? Did you do three I years did in Jubilee? Four years, but I did two years in Jubilee. So I was in the city of Las Vegas for four years. But the two years I was in Jubilee was the two years, it was the hottest it had been in record time. And it, the first winter I was there, everybody blamed me because it was a year of snow in Vegas. <laughs> at the blizzard. And it was like, oh, he brought it. He's from Detroit. I'm like, eh. Because <laughs> so if, you've, 
if you've been swimming with dolphins and doing these excursions, like in Vegas, because if that's part of your curiosity and your that desire for how, what was that like? What did you do to find to make things that adventure still? Bikram yoga. I, I did hot yoga for a little bit, but the hiking, I went to Mount Charleston. I would, that's when I, I that was the precursor to my holistic journey was being in such, I had been in every climate until I moved to Vegas in 08. And then I was in this desert, which I had never really experienced in real time. And I moved there in July. So it was 115. Uh, it was when gas was $4 a gallon. So I was like, oh my God, but it was also family again. The people I met there, we did things. Like those first six months, I was a Las Vegas resident. I went to every club, I got VIP, I blew, I gambled $40, that was it. Anything more than that, <laughs> I wanna waste it. Um, but it was the first six months when I got the job at Jubilee. My first contract was very much, I went to every nightclub and I went with showgirls, so I had VIP treatment. It was. I was 23 living like a king. It was like, what? I could go, for, like, I, I saw Janet Jackson. We went to concerts. Vegas, my years there were well spent, like being a whole 20-year-old artist. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So you you had said something earlier when we were chatting, like how you mm -hmm. had this mindset of what you've been told, like, you have about this much time and you better figure out what we happens were, after. Yeah. We were talking, and like growing up, especially in the 80s and 90s, a lot of our school teachers, uh, especially artists, dance teachers would speak about uh, the, the shelf life of an artist. And they would always tell us, you know, by 25, 30, you should be done dancing. You should find other things to do because you're no longer marketable. And I'm like, okay. But it wasn't just like a one-time thing. That was childhood. That was adolescence years. Uh, no tattoos, no piercings. And by 30, you, you kind of done. You should stop. Um, and I thought that had changed in my mind when I got to Vegas because we had singers and dancers in the show in their 40s and 50s. But probably around 27, 28, I kind of, my mind was shutting down like, this is it. You should find other things to do. What do you want to do next? Like, you're almost 30. Like, is this going to be? And I wasn't out of shape. I wasn't untalented. I just, mindset wise, was like, okay, let's move on. Um, but at the same time, I started to fall out of love with dance. So it was kind of a two double-edged sword. And so it was time to move on. And I did. I was lost for a while, maybe six months. And then I moved to Tibet. I moved <laughs> in monastery and I lived in the mountains for about seven months. And it was, um, if you're a Marvel geek, it was like Dr. Strange. It felt very unreal and yet surreal like what and was there something in your life in vegas that was you were open to this kind of this this is what i want to do next what were you exposed to was it through yoga or what was making you even curious of that life was happening i had a horrible breakup with a fellow performer it was messy it was public it was embarrassing and yet eye-opening to the machinations of humans and after that experience it was kind of a walkabout like an honest to true i'm in my 20s my heart is broken uh, i felt angry betrayed uh, uh, like it was just a what do i do next um, and then the i fallen out of love with dance started to happen more and more so i was like this is not feeling like it used to be so i packed all my shit and left <laughs> 
and do you just bye bye? I took my and took I your. I do that. So if you ask anybody who really knows me, I will buy a one way ticket and just make it work until it doesn't anymore. And that's kind of how my career was. Oh, I got this job. I'm about to. I'm about to buy. A one, I bought a one way ticket to Disney World right after high school, and lived in Orlando in a hotel for about four weeks. I maxed out my first credit card, and then I got the job the fifth week and got my first apartment when I turned 19. Wow. So that yeah. adventure, that adventurous spirit, and then also- I'm a Virgo through and through. I love it. Oh I, love it. I love the world. And my mother never told me I was from Detroit, Michigan, in the United States of America on the planet Earth. She said, the planet is yours. Go see it. And so as oh. I got older, it was like, oh, shit, I got the money. And I didn't start paying for flights until recently. Every flight was paid for. Every experience was on, on somebody's company. You know, yeah. and so I was like, yes, I'm going to do it. Of course I am. Because when am I going to pay $3,000 to have a flight to Germany? You know, not not going to Germany for what? So yeah. it was an interesting leaning. In. I leaned in quite a bit. Even when it felt bad, I leaned in. <laughs> oh my okay i'm kind of just kind of this wow when you when you went to Tibet, it was for your own healing and growth it wasn't like here's a career change you went for your own it, i went because i was no one in my immediate family or friends that knew me as a kid had lived my life and so it was a very uh, like i can't explain to y'all what i've been through to understand how i feel to even get grasp why i want to do this so it was more of a let me buy this one-way ticket and then when i come back either i'm gonna be good or i won't you know yeah. um, and everybody who knew me understood like my best friend was like just let me know where you're gonna be at you know because both of my two closest best friends we've known each other since ninth and tenth grade so they were very aware of me they're like ah oh, tim a little flighty when he when he wants to be away he will find a way to disappear um, and it was that for me. I was about to be 30. I was 28 and I wanted to disappear and see who I was outside of being an artist, a dancer. Um, and it led me back to dance somehow. So it was perfect. So when you were in Tibet, were there things that you, that like altered who you thought you were or what, how you wanted to live? The experience when I learned about meditation, living so minimalist, um, being around so many grateful people, uh, just in the sense of, I remember being that person and um, not to go full holistic, but I healed my wounded child while I was there. And that was the, that was the circle that hit me in the forehead. Like, he not happy. So once he got happy, yeah. I've been drama free going on six years now. I haven't had really anything to ruffle my feathers. Uh, I'm usually in a, a great mood, 98% of the life. Um, it was such a click. Like, like we spoke before we recorded. I started to be the person I wish I had when I was younger, when I was grown, when I was sad, when I was feeling worthless. At any moment when any of those adjectives occurred, um, I, I became him. I became the person I wish I could go run and talk to and call. Um, and now I'm him embodied. And so I try to lead with that example, you know. Well, you even said some that the person I wish I had, but also the person, I think you said, like the person of the world needs right now too. Yeah, we, we, we got to be the change the world needs. Like we can't wait for someone to tell us to be great or be good or loving or compassionate or walk in balance. We have to kind of look in our reflection and be our own superhero, our own cheerleader, because 
Uh, one thing I use a lot is I put myself first, second, and third. And when I stop being selfish and start being self-full, I could be enough for everybody and myself. Um, and that was, that was, I had a lot of cliche moments happen when I was in Tibet. You know, it was a lot of those old sayings kind of hit me on the head now that I had experienced life. At 12 and 13, I'm like, what does this mean? But now I'm like, oh, that's what my mom and grandmother or my aunt or my teacher or somebody like, it would be like, mm, that's what they meant. Mm, okay, I did that. Oh. That was me. Yeah. I would. I want. I want to meet your parents. <laughs> oh, I love you. So my mom and my pops have been married 27 years, and they are they they dressed alike when they came to Vegas. Um, she remarried, so my stepfather is my pops, and I love my pops. He is. He raised me. He he taught me how to love women. He showed me what a man was, and he he raised me and my brother. And he's just ah, he's what a father should be in the world right now. And him and my mom were. My mom showed us what love was and what strength was and vulnerability. And I walk in those adjectives now, vulnerable and compassion. So yeah, they're, they're crazy, but they're good people. I get it honest. I get it. Well, even when they're saying that there's no limit, go see the world, but like you're hearing things now of their wisdom that you weren't able to comprehend. really take comprehend till now, but that's like, yeah. so when I, when we were trying to set this up and I totally messed up our time because of time difference. And you said you were doing a healing session. I'm like, oh, cause I think we, I have a massage therapist. I do like uh, work with embody, work with trauma and the, and the stories in our body. So when you say, um, oh my gosh, the word cliche, I'm like, I live in the woo, in the woo woo world and people that don't know that like, oh, she's going woo woo. But people that know you can't just heal in your head. It's in your body. It's in community. It's bodies being settled together. And I know we talked about race. I'm just yes. going to throw this ball back to you because would you share what you're doing now? Because it's what was so needed. And that makes me feel yeah, settled in my body when I hear it. It makes me feel hope, <laughs> hope, hopeful again, because I think yeah. this, the times we're in that are so, we're not going to go back to what was. And, no, and even if you, and we should, and you talk about breaking the wheel. I feel like yeah. we need to see the hope in it instead of feeling despair, like that we can't <laughs> fix this mess. I, I can't imagine living in fear and despair right now. I would probably shrivel up in the corner and die. Like, it would be so hard. But I think, especially now that I'm in my 30s, these last four years have been a push of be the person I wish I had, as well as how can I get all of my modalities into one? Because I can't just be a massage therapist and live in that world all the time. And I can't just be a holistic healer and live in energy and people's despair and pain all the time nor can I just be a dancer anymore. I'm no longer just a performer. So I teach dance. I do massage therapy. I'm a Reiki master. Um, and I do seminars, workshops where we meditate, we dance, we communicate, have honest communication about being vulnerable. Um, and my goal is as a generation, and by generation, I mean everybody who's alive, uh, if you're four or four or 80, um, as a generation to heal uh, and find that peace of mind, peace of body, peace of spirit, so you can be whole and not pieces anymore, um, if that makes sense. And so I do that. Uh, I've done seminars and conventions in Detroit, Miami, Phoenix, wherever I, my friends live, I go to visit them and tell them, invite their homegirls, bring their kids. Um, I'll do adult events where we have drinks and I'll do kid events where we play. But if I could reach everybody's mind, not just children, um, outside meditation events. Five years ago, a lot of that was demonized or worshiping occults. And now people are holding crystals 
people are breathing with their friends, people are having vulnerable conversations because what was hidden is now being seen. And so I want to be seen and I want people to see themselves. Um, Cause I got it tattooed on me when, when I was in Vegas, uh, I see you from the movie Avatar and it just touched me. Now that we know each other, it touched me because at that age, I didn't know why I wanted the tattoo, but I cried when I saw the movie. And so now that I'm older, I'm like, that part, I don't just see you, I see you into who you are. I try to lead with that, with the children, with the adults, with the men and women I meet and everybody I interact with. Because if you can see somebody beyond what you see, then you're not seeing the, the ignorance of our past. You're seeing them so you can be better to, to break the wheel. Because we need something better than a wheel. We need a whole damn car. You know, right. so that has to be, you know. We were sharing tattoos and, and your yes. tattoo stories. Mine, okay, my husband passed 12 years ago and I had a mm -hmm. tattoo that was a, kind of about that. And I realized he's not the whole story. So this is like my, I know nobody can see this, but I have three stars, which is myself and my kids. And it turns into a yeah. braid, but it's That's about, integ it's integration. It's about the body, mind, soul that we tend yes. to compartment. Like it's a time for us, I think in the world that we are not the parts of us. Like we need to like that inner oh. child to heal. Like if your body, your body's not going to be healthy. If your soul is broken or your mind Very is true. broken, like how, and like even as communities that we can braid without like this has space in the braid it's not like strangling yes, like there yeah, has to be room unraveling we braided the, the conversation this moment I, I thank you so much for um, reaching out and, and wanting to have conversation just about the world and as artists because our experiences were very different but we do share so many commonalities that we can then speak about the things that make us very different and make us uncomfortable or speak about stories you've never heard and, and yeah. you wouldn't hear unless you heard it from me. Right. right. And I think that's the, somebody said something beautiful on Instagram is we as African-Americans know so much history about the world. How much of the world has taken the time to learn our history and what we've been through as a people, not just 5,000 years ago, but last hundred. You know, just yeah. the last hundred. And then let's, let's skip slavery and who we were before we were in shackles. Because I know about the Holocaust like yesterday. I also know about the Spanish Inquisition. I know about the Japanese internment camps because it was taught. Um, until the sympathy is taught, the empathy won't be there. Um, we were em empathetic about the Holocaust and we're empathetic about it because we would never dare speak certain names or certain things because we learned the empathy behind their story. Like, damn, that's sad, you know? So now the conversation is feel our empathy, see how we live. And then maybe you could see that it's not just sad. It's like, dang, we need to do something. Like if this right. is how they day or every year, this is not just one generation feeling this, then it is something that if my grandmother who's 78 feels how I feel, feels how my guy kid who's 11 feels, that's 11 to 78. That's a lot of pain that's not being heard, you know? Yeah. Now that it's being heard, then it, shared pain is easier to dissolve. Mm. One race okay. holding on to pain for so long and not sharing it or trying to share it and not being heard balls up. And like we spoke about epigenetics as well. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA. So to get it out, 
I want to hear how it feels. If it's uncomfortable, then it's good. Because yeah. we live we live in comfortable too long, we'll have 400 years of slavery or a 100 years of discrimination. But living in uncomfortable, look how much has gotten done in six months of being uncomfortable. That's the, when we were checking in, like COVID, like when people are joking, how are you? Well, compared to like COVID to the, hol- or to the apocalypse, I'm like, <laughs> but like the COVID is like it's, it's a it's a blessing because we would not slow down to listen and the fact that the race like with the the george floyd murders and mm-hmm. everything that's shown like this is not new where before we would hear it and then we just kept going and then yeah. it's like we are forced to hold yeah. hold still and squirm and be uncomfortable and listen one of my white uh performers i i not to call her out she white female she reached out maybe a week after the george floyd, and she was so apologetic and so worried about me and then her treatment of me when we were in a cast together and I literally was like this is already the change because you consciously knowing that maybe something you said would have hurt me is part of the change that 50 years ago it wouldn't you wouldn't have even reached out it would have been like "Ooh, he fine so that is the for me I don't live in the yesteryear yesterday was crap at any given point in history there was a time when women didn't have rights and that's very recent. So for me, I don't want to go backwards. I want to go forward and forward takes everybody. And, and, and the fact that me and you are a generation apart and we've been on the phone for over an hour lets me know that this is the change. And we laughed, we've cried, we've, we've emoted together about several subjects, like not just, oh, we're both dancers or we both teach dance now. Um, it's a sense of your soul has now connected to mine. And so by proxy, both of our stories moving forward will be easier to spread. Like, Mm. oh, I met this guy or I met this girl and she or he moved me. Yeah. You know? Well, that's like when thinking about doing the podcast, why? It's because stories have always intrigued me. But when I started doing my own story work around trauma, and when the things that we have shame about that we don't share, when you actually share it only, only in safe, and there's no, I didn't even think the word safe. I want to say brave community instead of safe because it's never totally safe. But in a brave community where somebody meets you with empathy in your shame, that we start to bond chemically, we start to understand our souls. But, but like even the judgments we have, the, the unconscious bias, that when you sit with someone's soul in reality, of their pain and empathy, but also the excellence, because I feel like hearing your story, the part of things are hard, but there's that excellence. Like, oh, damn, look what you were able, and not like just to we push through. Be, yeah, we could like, be change we wish we, we had. And, yeah. and, and yes, circumstances are very difficult for others, whether you're a person of color or a woman, but the experience for me was, I have to push past this because my dreams are coming true, as well as I am meeting so many beautiful souls that is not stepping stones to happiness, but escalating. Just a nice smooth, like, oh my God, this person, oh my God, these people, oh my God, love. Like, not to be cliche, but love really does move mountains. It's crazy, but it's, it's what's been paying the bills since I stopped performing. So I know it does because it's, it's a constant and it's, um, as something taught me in Tibet, it's the inexhaustible source. It's inexhaustible. So 
whenever you feel low, love on yourself or find somebody who you know can love on you. I love you. You're mm-hmm. special. You know, it's something I'll leave you with. If I told you a thousand times I loved you, what would you believe in your heart? I, only what I believed in there to start with, probably. You know what I mean? And, and, and if you told somebody every day that you loved them, what would, what would be the end result after two years of telling them? Yeah, you would start to believe that. It would, that you it, want it, to it, Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like that, I think what you were saying, like if, if you don't do the inner work, we're just, we're just sharing our shame and we're sharing our trauma and we're traumatizing each other. And like even talked about like black trauma and white trauma that we're all mm-hmm. carrying it and we're, we're hitting each other with it. Yes. It's, but, it's the, yes, it's the give, it's the non give and take of my experience is this and mine's is this. And it's like, but both of y'all experiences are really, really shitty. So maybe we could find a happy medium in, in our shared shame, shared vulnerability, shared history. Uh, because history is not separate. We shared the same time in the past, but yes, the paths were different. Um, that's what we need to lean into because going forward, our paths won't be the same. They will just have to be respectfully different as opposed to where we've been. Um, and that's that the hardest part about being where we are now is trying not to go back to what felt comfortable. Yeah. Because it really wasn't comfortable. It was just kind of stagnant. Yeah, it was was kind of dead. (sighs) Yeah, and like our choices, I remember going through something in therapy, like I had this decision to make, like it was about love and romance because I've been a a widow, but he was said, well, what is your choice? And I'm like, I could either close my heart down Mm -hmm. or or I could bleed out. I don't want to close my heart. How he goes, what if you just let it hurt and then you can heal? And I went, that's the most honest thing anyone's ever said to me. Like, just let it hurt. Let it be uncomfortable. Pain and hurt is is the healing because hurt people hurt people. And that's what you meant by spilling each other's energy on each other like that. That is two versions of hurt clashing. Heal people, heal people. So went inward, talked to the young child inside of me and said, hey, you're not alone and your life is about to be epic. Not only did he listen, but it changed my perspective on my life. I wasn't this lonely child who was uncomfortable and misplaced and felt weird in the world. I was, I had so many women and men who loved me through my life and pushed me to keep going. Um, I started to see, you could see the sunrise or you could see the rain. I started to see the sunrise in the day and appreciate the rain. Like, I got to have one, but I love this. So I'm going to love on it more, you know? (laughs) There's no way to ever say anything on top of what you said to make it like, (laughs) like, okay, here's our little button to end it. I'm just like, I know I'm going to be pondering this and like really it's sinking in. It's not like this is head stuff. Like it's going to the deep part of the soul that just like, oh my gosh, there's hope. There's work to do, but if there's no hope, it's hard to do the work. Um, and I would, I want to, if we can share on this, I know you do like virtual healings, you do Reiki. I would love to uh, participate in what I'm in my mind. I'm like, can you come, can you come to Bermuda with me and do a retreat on healing around body and story? I want to go to Costa Rica and just do it, heal the inner child for people. It's, it was difficult to look in the mirror and see that the crazy part is, I know 
the one thing all of my exes had in common was me. The one thing all of the people that I cut off had in common was me. I was their intertwining point. So maybe it wasn't all of them. Maybe it was me. And so looking inside and doing the work and looking in the mirror going, shit, maybe you're the problem. Then I became the solution. Like, oh, I can't depend on you if it's not on you. It's me. And the rest was what they call history. Like, 30 for me, these last, I'll be 35 in September. These last five years have been like, you can really create your heaven on earth. I may not be wealthy, I, I, but I'm, 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 my gratitude and my generosity and my wealth comes from my heart. And I'm happy with everybody I communicate with feels me. And that is better than gold. Mm. Being seen. Being seen. That's, that's your, your tattoo. This is so interesting because I know we have to wrap this up. And I'm like, how I want to vert, I want to reach to the screen and hug you. Oh, I but know I can, this was perfect. But I can feel like I seriously can feel this in my heart. Like even though we're on the other side of the country, there is that you bond. Can feel me. Yeah, and it's not just being That's the bluebell. The There's the okay. There is this whole beautiful thing of bringing movement and healing yes. all to, together. And like, what if we start to live in our bodies truly? The earth without a, our earth. Oh yeah, say that part, and then we'll finish with that because that's, yeah, that's definitely the earth without art is just uh. So the body has to be in motion. The earth, the earth requires us to be art in motion. Artistry in motion is part of the the, the jizz of life. The, the, the whoo, you know. <laughs> Amen. Yes. I'm gonna leave it at that because yes. there's so much. I think this will be an episode that people need to listen to a few <laughs> times because. There's the it. dance stuff, but there's other things just to so let, it, let it seep in. Oh, <sighs> I appreciate you so much for reaching out. And I hope this helps more people have yeah. more conversations about life. Life. Yeah. All right. I'm going to end it right now, but we'll say goodbye. And I'm going to post with some pictures of you in your Jubilee, maybe a G string picture just for your parents. Yes. On the I, <laughs> hey, I'm here for, I'm here for, for it. Thank you so much, Tim. This was, this is, this is going to keep me going all day. It was perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you.